0: The Best of Enemies tells the true story, true story of school integration in Durham, North Carolina in 1971, and the unlikely friendship of black activist Ann Atwater and local clan leader C.P. Ellis. Years before, the Supreme Court had actually ruled that schools must be integrated and not separated by race, but a bunch of cities didn't get the memo, and they were slow to adopt the court's ruling. When a black school in Durham burned down, it forced the issue of integration. So Durham called a series of forums in which representatives from the black and the white communities might come together to discuss and vote on a set of proposals to integrate the schools. Ellis, the Grand Cyclops, basically the president of the local KKK, and Ann Atwater, the activist leader of Operation Breakthrough, which was a black civil rights organization, they were reluctantly appointed to co-chair the committee. Both Ellis and Atwater admitted to having a a deep distrust and even hatred of each other. The the notion of working together offended them. They couldn't even at one point sit down at the same table to talk. But a funny thing happened as they were forced by circumstances to cooperate. They got to know each other, learn about each other's families. They realized that the educational needs of their children uh, far exceeded whatever personal differences they had between each other. And at the end of this multi-week community forum, Ellis shocked his friends and voted for school integration. He renounced his membership in the Klan. He even tore up his Klan card in public. To be sure, he suffered as a result. The gas station that he owned was attacked and he lost many of his friends, but he didn't look back. Atwater and Ellis even decided to keep working together in Durham and beyond. They toured the country, gave talks about how our enemies could be friends. When Ellis died in 2004, Ann Atwater even spoke at his funeral, an honor that I'm sure Ellis would have reciprocated at Atwater's funeral 12 years later. It's a great picture. I watched uh, the movie Best of Enemies this week, and and in many ways, it's, you know, kind of your typical activist film, but it's still a good one. And even though, thankfully, our culture has made lots of strides in 1971, it still raises an important question that we need to keep asking, and as Christians, especially, need to keep asking, how are we to love our enemies? How are we to love the C.P. Ellis's and Ann Atwater's of the world? This is a question we should never stop asking ourselves. And we should never stop asking this question because Jesus raises the question for all time in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount in our series here at Rooftop called Religion Redefined. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know, it's basically Jesus' big, big magnum opus, his big manifesto. It's recorded in Gospel Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. In the sermon, Jesus lays out God's radical demands for his people. It is not for easy listening. Uh, It's for people who want to leave the crowd, the crowd of humanity, and become authentic followers of Jesus. This morning, we're wrapping up part one of the sermon in which Jesus has been contrasting Jewish interpretation of the law with the divine intent of the law. So during this section, Jesus has been talking about Old Testament laws related to different topics, uh, divorce, murder, revenge, and what God always intended in these instructions. And to finish out this section, Jesus decides to talk about the most important law, the law to love one another. And not just one another, but the law to love your enemies. Even people like C.P. Ellis even people like Ann Atwater. So let me go ahead and share with you the passage. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, pff, Jesus did that. Pff, <laughs> what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, pshaw. What are you doing any more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if you've been following the series so far, you know that there is a pattern to how Jesus teaches in this section. This is the sixth example of Jesus challenging a misinterpretation of an Old Testament law and replacing it with the original divine intent behind the law. So what is the Old Testament law that Jesus' Jewish audience, and more specifically the Pharisees, were misinterpreting? Well, Jesus says it. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So so many of the people in Jesus' day actually believed that this is what the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, told them to do, love their neighbors and hate their enemies. And here's the crazy thing. From a certain perspective, from a certain reading of the Old Testament, the Bible does kind of say that. For example, Jesus quotes the book of Leviticus here. As Leviticus says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So, so love of neighbor as yourself was rooted in the Hebrew law. Jews were supposed to take care of each other. Jews were supposed to loan freely to each other. Jews were supposed to freed each other. The law clearly said that as the clan motto goes in the movie, non silba anthar," Not for oneself, but for others. Jews thought the same thing. Now how are the Pharisees misinterpreting the command to love your neighbor? Well, honestly, same way the clan did. They were drawing the line at the word neighbor. They were defining neighbor as anyone among their own people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Other people, non-neighbors, not your people, different matter. The Pharisees didn't believe they were required to love people who weren't their neighbor, people who didn't look like them or share their beliefs. The Bible said that they should love their neighbor, but it dis- didn't necessarily tell them they had to love people who weren't their neighbor. So they felt a certain freedom to not love others, non-Jews, Romans, Gentiles, people they felt superior to. In fact, not only did many Jews not feel compelled to love their neighbors, but they felt empowered by the Bible to even hate their neighbors. Where would they get that? Uh, Well, you see, the Hebrew Bible is very honest at points. The Old Testament Jews had enemies and they seemed to have been given divine permission to hate them. Like the Amalekites in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, The Amalekites were, were historic enemies of Israel. Here's what Moses says. When the Lord your God has delivered the Amalekites over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. So the Jews didn't believe that God would have expected them to love people like the Amalekites. I mean, these were the Amalekites. These were their ancient foes. And here's the thing, their their current foes, their foes in the first century, the Romans, were just as bad. They felt permission from God to detest people like this. And this spirit of hatred towards enemies, every now and then, it kind of bubbles up. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 26, I abhor, I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. Hmm. Or in Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Wow. That's in the Bible. So yeah, yeah, the Hebrew Bible told the Jews to love their neighbor, but they drew the line at neighbor. They defined neighbor as a Jewish countryman, and they found in the Bible permission to hate anyone who wasn't that. That's what they had heard, Jesus says. Love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, he clarifies what God intended in the law, as Jesus has explained in this section of the sermon the Pharisees and their followers were getting the law wrong. They were interpreting it in a way that made it easy to obey. They were lowering the bar. Yeah, the law said that they were to love their neighbors. And yes, the law includes some pretty rough moments involving killing enemies and feeling hatred for them. But Jesus explains what God's overall point was in the Bible. And God's intent could not be simpler. And he says it. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Now, how does Jesus reinterpret the love command from Leviticus 19 to mean this? Well, in Leviticus 19, the law says, among your own people, love your neighbor. The Jews cut that definition of neighbor off to mean just their own people. But Jesus seems to say that God meant that to include everybody. Even enemies. He's saying the Pharisees were making way too much of a deal over the proper definition of neighbor. According to Jesus, we should love everyone as our neighbors, including our enemies. Everybody is your neighbor. As you're listening to this, you might be thinking of another scene from the Gospels in which we see this very debate play out right in front of our eyes. Uh, The scene comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, when an expert in the Jewish law comes to Jesus and asks him a question, Luke chapter 10. In the story, an expert of the law comes to Jesus and asks him, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, hey, good question. Well, what does the law say? Man says, well, law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh and the law says, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? He says, next verse. <laughs> next verse, next slide. <laughs> <laughs> says, you have answered correctly. Ding, 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 ding. Answer correctly. Good job. Do this and you will live. But the conversation goes on. The man, Luke writes this, the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus. And who is my neighbor? That's the question, right? That's the question. And who is my neighbor? And that's a question we ask. I mean, we all know, we all know deep down that God wants us to love our neighbor. We even suspect deep in our hearts that God wants us to love everybody. But if we're really, truly honest with ourselves, that's just not something that we want to do. I mean, who would? There are some pretty violent, ugly people out there that we don't want to love, right? Right? White supremacists, criminals, Democrats, Republicans, <laughs> people who watch CNN, people who watch Fox News, radical activists, abortion doctors, people who have hurt us, people who have abused us, people who just don't like. We don't want to love them, but we know deep down at least that God wants us to love them as our neighbor. We don't want to, so what do we do? What do we do? Well, like this guy, we fidget. We fidget with the definition of neighbor. My neighbor is people who look like me. My neighbor is people who haven't hurt me. My neighbor is people in my family. Like Jesus' interlocutor, we try to justify our unwillingness to love everybody by asking, who am I required by the law to love? Jesus knew that this was what the guy was asking. He knew he was trying to justify his lack of love. So in response to the man's question, Jesus tells him a story, right? Maybe you know the story. Here's how it goes. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him dead He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, The one who had mercy on him? Yes. (laughs) Jesus said, go do that. Now maybe you know the story. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells it in response to the man's question, who is my neighbor? So in the story, a Jewish man gets beat up, left for dead by two robbers. Two other Jewish men walk by without helping, a Levite and a priest. They actually cross by to the other side of the road to avoid having to engage, kind of like when you're downtown for the baseball game. You see a homeless person they don't have to interact with, so you cross to the other side of the street. None of us have ever done that, right? Never. But then, who stops to help? A Samaritan. A person from Samaria. Stops, cares for the man, pays for him to recover in an inn, promising to cover all the bills. Now, typically we call this guy the good Samaritan, but this is why the story is so compelling. In the Jewish worldview, there was no such thing. There were no good Samaritans. Jews did not think of Samaritans as good. There were only bad Samaritans. This is the story of the bad Samaritan. People from Samaria were enemies who lived in enemy territory. They, they were like members of the KKK or communists. The Samaritans were Jewish half-breeds who had sold out their heritage during the exile. This is important information in understanding of the story because it reframes what's happening. This Jewish man asks, who is my neighbor that I have to love? And Jesus tells the man a story about a bad Samaritan who loves a beat-up Jewish guy while a whole bunch of other Jewish guys walk right by And then he asks him, who was the neighbor to the man who was robbed? And the guy says, the guy can't even say the guy's name. The guy says, the the, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan, the, the one who had mercy. Jesus says, yes, yes, that guy was a neighbor. Go and be like that guy. Basically he's saying, do not give me this who is my neighbor crap. Samaritans are loving Jews better than you are loving each other. That's what Jesus tells the guy. If this ungodly Samaritan can love one of you as a neighbor, shouldn't you, a member of God's holy people, love your enemies even more? Love everybody as your neighbor, even your enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, just to make this more relevant to you and I, Let's recast the story a bit, okay? Let's say we are asking Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? Let's say we go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, uh, how do I get into uh, heaven? Uh, And he's like, well, it was a lesson. We say, well, you know, love your neighbors yourself. So Jesus, who do I have to love? Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Really, Jesus, what I'm really asking, what's the fewest number of people I have to love and can still call myself a Christian? That's the question we're asking. What's the fewest number of people I can love and still call myself a Christian? Uh, how, how might Jesus answer that question if we asked it? Well, he might say something like this. He, say, he might say, okay, all right, Pastor Matt. Okay, people with rooftop, let me tell you a story. There was a uh, rooftop worship pastor who was driving down to Orlando for a worship conference. That's the story. On the way, the rooftop worship pastor, driving in his VW van, broke down somewhere in Tennessee. Well, on the side of the road, he was violently attacked and robbed by some drunken Titans fans. <laughs> you know those Titans fans. He was left left for dead. Eventually, along came some Catholics heading to their own Catholic conference in Florida. Uh, They saw the worship pastor sped on by in the opposite lane. Then some Christian evangelicals came by. They pulled to the other side of the road, drove on by. They were late for their take America back for God rally. But then a trans pansexual atheist activist drove by. They, preferred pronoun, they were heading to their own Socialism and Atheist Convention in Florida. But they took pity on the worship pastor, bound up his wounds, restrung his guitar, (laughs) fixed his van, took him to the ER for stitches, and then to the Red Roof Inn for a few days to recover, promising to pay whatever remained. And then Jesus asks us who was a neighbor to the worship pastor. We're like, the the one who had mercy on him. (laughs) (laughs) How many of us are sitting in this room right now is exactly how the Jewish teacher would have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. He hated Samaritans that much. Just like many of us hate socialists and atheists. And trans people and people we think are destroying our nation. He would have been offended, irritated, challenged. That's how this Jewish guy would have heard the story. Jesus is exposing our lack of love for our despicable enemies by telling a story about our despicable enemies loving us better than we love them or even each other. And his point is simple love your enemies, your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor, even the Samaritans, the white supremacists, the radical activists, even the people who hurt you. Sure, you have enemies, but love them as your neighbor. Now, why? Why would we do that? Jesus gives us a couple reasons. First, we should love them because we are descendants of our Father. As he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children of your Father in heaven, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So sure, there are evil people in the world. Jesus acknowledges as much. He doesn't call evil people good, but God loves them all. He says he sends rain to water everybody's crops. He sends light, sunlight, to light everybody's paths. He's like the room mother who gives snacks to everybody, even the punk kids. We should love the people our father loves, give snacks to even the punk kids in order to be his kids. And secondly, we should love our enemies as our neighbors that we may be distinct in the world. Jesus goes on, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, pshaw, what are you doing to more than those? Basically, loving people like yourself is it's too easy. Even the world does that. I mean, it's practically natural to love people who are like yourself. Do you guys know that we all have what's called an in-group bias built into our brain? We all have the natural like, brain ability to love people who are like us. Just kind of in our brains. It's just natural. It's just natural and biological to love people who are like us. Uh, That's how we protect ourselves in a dangerous world. That's why nationalism is such a thing. That's why racial solidarity is such a thing. It's why blood is thicker than water because it's in our brains. We naturally care for people who are in group. What's in our in group, what's not natural and what should make us distinct as God's people is the ability to love people in the out group. This is not something our brains do too well. It's something that we need the Holy Spirit to do. I mean, it's so unnatural to love people your brain tells you to hate, but it can be done. Sometimes the world does this better than we do. Sometimes non Christians in the world know how to love people in the out group better than us. So not only are we not distinguishing ourselves from them, sometimes we're like behind them. My mother in law, for example, is not a Christian. She's not a Christian in the traditional Orthodox definition of that. But she is like the most compassionate, empathetic, open-hearted, open-handed, open-minded, inclusive, loving person I know. She's not a Christian. Frankly, it's a little embarrassing. She out-Christians me. Don't you hate it when you like know non-Christians who out-Christian you? We all know non-Christians who out-Christian us. Not that it's a competition. But we got to do better especially like on the thing that Jesus says should distinguish us, love. We gotta be better. Okay, so what's Jesus saying? Love everybody, love your neighbor, love your enemy, love your enemy as your neighbor. This was always the point of the law. Why? Because our father loves everybody, because we are his descendants and we're called to be distinct. Let's put some wheels on this though. I mean, I can't imagine that this idea of loving everybody is like that, objectionable. If I had asked you on your way in, like, do do you think that God really wants us to love everybody? You would have said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So then why are we talking about it? Because we don't do it. Talking about it's one thing. Doing it's another. We agree with it in the abstract, but then we go about our lives really struggling to love people. And I'm not talking like tolerating people or like, you know, you know, just giving them their space. I'm talking about loving people truly deeply from the heart. That's the expectation. How do we do that? Let's talk specifics. Dispense with the vagaries. Before we close with communion this morning, I've got three questions that I want to think about for a moment. and my prayer as we think through these questions this morning, is that the Spirit might speak to us a bit. Give us some things to do. Question number one. First, who are our enemies? Who are your enemies? Who is the person that you really, truly struggle to love deep down from your heart? Whose face just came to your mind? Who are our enemies? What's that out group of people that we struggle to love truly, deeply? Now, you might object to the idea that you know that this person or these people are like your enemies. I mean, that might feel harsh. There's a lot of people in my life that I struggle to love, but does that mean they're my enemies? I uh, not That doesn't feel right. If you know Jesus, though, you know that there's not a lot of grace in his teaching? I mean, if you're not loving someone as your neighbor, Jesus might say you're hating them as your enemy. If you're not loving them, you're hating them. I don't think we get to tell Jesus, oh, but Jesus, there's a third category. And if you can't think of any enemies that you have, it might be for a different reason. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't don't think there's not a lot of people I don't don't like or don't like me. If you can't think of any enemies that you have, it might be for a different reason. There's There's a good chance that you're not living boldly enough. Right? I mean, elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, woe to you, woe to you. That's a whoa, whoa! you're in trouble. You're in trouble if all men speak well of you. So he says, if you don't have any enemies, you're in trouble. If you don't have any enemies, you're not doing it right. You see, when we speak truth to each other, when we stand up to each other, when we stand up on behalf of the weak and the powerless, when we obey God, not man, we're going to make enemies. I tried for a long time to be a pastor without any enemies, it don't work. You ain't a good pastor. If you live boldly, you're going to make enemies. And even if you don't live boldly, there's still a chance you're going to have some. Life brings enemies your way. Who are yours? Put a face on it. Who's that person? Who are those people that you struggle to love deeply, truly, sincerely from the heart? From the heart. From your lower intestine. (laughs) Who are your enemies? Secondly, why do we hate them? Why do you hate them? This matters. God is sensitive to this. I pointed out earlier that the Hebrew Bible contains uh, some, some, some rough passages about God's people hating other people, like in the Psalms and in the law. As the psalmist writes, for example, I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked, like Ann Atwater and C.P. I'm going to sit with that person. The Pharisees actually seized on these moments in the scriptures and and find justification to hate sinners and non-Jews. They think, well, you know, if David can like refuse to engage uh, and, and hate the ungodly, then we can too. But I think, and I offer this very humbly, I think what we see here in the Old Testament is God's people in process. The authors of the Hebrew Bible wrote under duress and the oppression of all kinds of evil rulers. This was an abused people. If anything, the authors of the Hebrew Bible understand how hard it is to love people who have hurt you and who hate you. The Bible is very real like this. It's one of the reasons I like the Bible. And I think this is important because in Scripture, God invites us to think about why we hate or don't love other people. He is sensitive to those things. He knows what that person did to you. He knows that you were raised in an isolated environment. He knows that your mother was a racist. He knows how you were disrespected or insulted. You're allowed to feel your hatred. You're allowed to feel your confusion, your ambivalence. You're allowed to feel those things, if only to take them to God. I want to believe that's what the authors of Scripture are doing with their hatred. They're taking it to God. They're being honest. can be honest with why we hate the people we do. Sometimes we have good reasons. Sometimes we don't. God wants to hear those. We need to voice them. But while we do get glimpses of genuine hatred of enemies in Scripture, God is also very clear in the Old Testament what he expects of his people, and it's not hatred. For example, even in the book of Exodus, God says, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, your enemy's donkey wandering off, give it back. You would want someone to return your donkey. Let's read in Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. That's in the Old Testament too. If your enemy is hungry or thirsty, give them food and water. (laughs) Duh! So God cares why you feel what you feel toward that person. You should feel that. You should take it to God. But our Father is not going to back down. He sends rain and sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. Which brings us to question number three. How can we love them? How can we love our enemies? The people who have hurt us. The people who who detest us. How do we love them? We really do not need to overthink this. Scripture has given us lots of little ideas already. If your enemy needs something to live and you can give it to them, you should give it to them. Or what Jesus has said, love your neighbor or your enemy as yourself. I mean, in any given situation, figure out how do I want to be treated and treat the other person like that. And we can all start by praying for the people we struggle to love. Jesus says that too. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, probably you know that Jesus lived this out, right? This very thing. What did he say as the Roman soldiers were like, nailing spikes into his wrists and his feet and cramming that crown thorns down on his brow what did he pray? Father this is crazy Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing that's what Jesus prayed they don't know what they're doing they don't understand forgive him for that I don't know if Jesus, if God does but Jesus asked them I've prayed this a lot over the years Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As a pastor, I get to see people at their best. I get to see people at their worst. We all do. Sometimes as a result of doing life together, people end up not liking me very much, saying or doing hurtful things. I get hurt too. You might not know this about me. I'm a super hypersensitive guy. I get hurt easily. And I pray this. Although I pray it with a twist. Because I don't want to sound too much like Jesus because I'm like not him. I'm like a photo negative of Jesus. but I pray this, I say, this is, this is Matt's prayer Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing frankly neither do I pray that all the time Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing and heck, I don't either I heard that as a prayer for you maybe that's a prayer you can pray for your enemies this morning, maybe you're not quite ready to work together rebuilding schools Maybe you're not ready to sit down and talk about the past. Maybe you're not ready to tear up their KKK membership card or repent of the ways they've sinned against you. Maybe you're not ready to forgive them. But maybe you can start praying that God can. With a twist. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Neither do we.